Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Philippians chapter 2. We'll start, we'll start in chapter 1, verse 27. Hear now the word of our God from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that, for Christ's sake, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ." But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with his father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that, I, that shortly I myself will come also. This is the word of the Lord. As Americans, we have a, a tendency toward individualism. We, we tend to think that thinking for yourself is the best thing in the world. When I was in seminary, I, I met a lot of Korean students at Westminster who, who really struggled with this because in their culture, the, the way that you learned was by adopting your teacher's way of thinking and talking and writing. In America, we call that plagiarism. Because that's, I mean, if you actually succeed at that, you actually adopt your teacher's thinking, way of thinking, knowing, writing, talking, then you're using their words without 
referencing them. And so they're they really struggling with, but that's the way we were taught to learn in Korea. Well, what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2 is a way of thinking together that is quite different from the modern American way of thinking for yourself. In the span of four verses, in verses 2 through 5, Paul uses the word phreneo three times. Uh, the word phreneo means to think, and the, the ESV translates it mind in all three instances because they're, they're trying to capture the idea of what, what Paul's getting at. And uh, it means to, to think a certain way, to have a certain perspective, a certain mindset. And Paul is saying that your way of thinking about one another is to be the same as Christ's way of thinking about you. If Christ is at work in you, then his attitude, his mindset, his perspective on life should characterize all of you. There's a way in which it's Christ's own way of thinking, his attitude, his perspective, his, his, that is what should characterize all of us. And in verses 1 and 2, Paul sets forth a fourfold if-then statement. These aren't, there's not four different if-then statements. This is a fourfold if-then statement. There are four ifs. You know, all part of one if, and then a four thens, all part of one then. So watch how, he, watch how Paul weaves this together. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, if these four things are true, if being in Christ produces encouragement and comfort. If sharing in the Holy Spirit produces love, affection, and sympathy, then Paul says, complete my joy. Uh, joy will continue to be a theme throughout Philippians, and that's why Paul highlights it here. Complete my joy in these four ways. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind of one way of thinking. These four things are the expression of the encouragement that we have in Christ. These four things flow out of the love that we share in the Holy Spirit. Be of the same mind. Have the same thoughts. Is it, It's just that that sounds like a strange way of saying it, so they, they translate it, be of one mind. But Christians are to think alike. We are to have the same mindset, the same perspective. And the reason why is because we have been united to Christ. The great hymn that's at the heart of our passage tonight is going to be the, this is sort of the why and the what. But, what it, but that's where Paul starts off by saying, have this same way of thinking. And notice the second result flows from the second if. If there is any comfort from love, have the same love. When you have experienced the love of God, then practice that same love. Indeed, practicing love is important. Having the same love isn't just something that happens. It has to be something that's done to love the way that God has loved us, the way that Christ has loved us. And the third result flows from the third if. If there is any fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship in the Spirit, then be united in your very souls. 
be harmonious, of one accord, because the same Holy Spirit indwells you all. And then finally, if there is any affection and sympathy, be of one mind. And again, that word phreneo, think the same thoughts, be of one mind together. If Christ has united you to himself, then you should think the same thoughts together. Now, what is Paul saying here? I mean, he's not really talking about, ah, you should all you know, have uh, sort of, sort of, have the, it's, it's, it's not a theological discussion here. What sorts of thoughts should be characterizing us? Well, keep reading. It's the second point. Because the chief characteristic of this attitude, this mindset, is humility. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul insists that we should not do anything out of selfish ambition, out of rivalry or vain conceit. Rather, we are to consider others as more significant than ourselves. Now, in, in verse 4, most translations water down the force of what Paul says. Paul doesn't say each of you should look not only to his own interests. He says each of you should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. It's literally each looking not to his own things, but rather each to the things of others. I think a lot of translators, a lot of Commentators and preachers have a hard time saying, wait, I'm not supposed to look to my own interests. And so they just can't quite, they can't quite agree with the force of what Paul says. Now, there's a curious grammatical point that is hard to render in English because in verse 4, there are two eaches. The first each is singular, but the second each is plural. Now, what's the English plural of each? Each? Each of y'all, um, so, but each of you, singular, should look not to his own things, but rather each, all of you, plural, should look to the things of others. What's Paul saying? Don't be an individualist. Don't just look out for your own interests. Yeah. So y'all, or each, must all you eaches must think first of the interests of others. Now, why do I think this is such a big point to Paul? Well, look down to verse 21. He illustrates it at the end of the section. Paul says that he has no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He says... Timothy illustrates the point I just made a minute ago. Timothy seeks not his own interests, but the interest of Christ. So, therefore, he is genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul is saying the Christian has no business looking out for his own interests. After all, as we see in the heart of the passage, Jesus Christ was not concerned with his own interests, but with the interests of his people. And even so, you are not to seek your own good, but the good of others. True humility, verse 3, puts aside all rivalry, ambition, and conceit and seeks to encourage and love others, putting their needs and interests first. You probably all know someone who is married to his job. Such a man 
often thinks that he needs to do this in order to provide for his family. And he's concerned with status and standard of living and keeping up with the Joneses. But if it interferes with his responsibilities as a husband and father, then it's, it's nothing but selfish ambition. If it damages the interests of others, then it's simply vain conceit. I mean, more subtle, perhaps, is the way we interact in the church. Too often we're more interested in promoting our own concerns than with humbly submitting to the interests of others. The church can easily become a battlefield of competing interests where everyone's convinced that his or her way is the right way. True humility becomes hard to find. I certainly have done that. True humility is willing not only to give assistance, but is also willing to ask for help when it is needed. Because if, if everybody, if we all put up a front saying, ah, oh, I know, you know, and I can always help, and I can always, then if we're not willing to ask for help, if we don't say, ouch, help, I need, then it's not actually seeking the interests of others. Because it's when, when we're bearing one another's burdens, we also need to recognize when we're a burden. And I've, I'll never forget Rolf Kaler in his, as he was approaching what turned out to be his last couple of weeks, saying, I don't want to be a burden. So he was going to go into a home just so he wouldn't be a burden. And I waited because I knew he didn't want to. And finally he said, okay, fine. I'll be a burden. But I don't think you'll find anybody who will take me. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that, that was the one thing that was not going to happen. But, but that's where when you think about what it means to be willing to be a burden in order to seek first not your own interests but the interests of others. This can only happen when we are willing to put down our defenses and reflect the encouragement, love, participation in the Spirit, the affection which we have in Christ. But how can we do this? How can we be humble? How can we put aside our selfish ambition and really consider others better than ourselves? Well, Paul answers by pointing us to Jesus. Because true humility is rooted and grounded in the humility of Christ, in the humiliation of Christ, in his incarnation, his suffering, and his death. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Where does this mind come from? It's already yours. It's yours in him. After, after all, consider the, the heights of his glory throughout eternity past as he dwelt in perfect unity with the Father before all ages, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humiliation of Christ, according to our larger catechism, was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon himself the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death until his resurrection. It's, it's not that he emptied himself of his deity. Had he done that, he couldn't have saved us. Only one who is God would have life in himself. Rather, he veiled his glory by taking on the form of a servant. He who was God 
the eternal I am, came as a man for the glory of God and the salvation of his people. This is the most amazing act of humility. God, the eternal, immortal, holy, wise, unchanging creator of the universe, became a creature. The divine lawgiver became one under his own law. He who knew not sin, whose very nature was righteousness itself, became sin for us and for our salvation. He who had life in himself, who had given life to all creatures, died, was buried, and descended into hell. He who had existed in perfect communion with his Father from all eternity was forsaken by his Father. How often do we consider what happened in the incarnation, what happened at the cross, where the spotless Lamb of God took upon himself the sins of the world. The Holy One of Israel bore the brunt of God's wrath against sin. The physical pain of crucifixion was excruciating, but it's worthwhile to note that the Gospels never really talk much about that, because that wasn't the part that was the most significant, the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. The outpouring of the Father's wrath was greater than any agony known to mankind. Our Lord Jesus is one person in two natures, God and man. But the the communion of properties between his two natures is such that whatever happened according to the properties of his humanity happened to his person. It was the whole Christ that suffered on the cross. Nothing less would do. As man, he had to pay the price for our sin. Yet only his true deity could give his sacrifice infinite worth. Why did he do this? Because the eternal Son of God put your interests ahead of his own. That used to shock people. Once upon a time, that was unbelievable. Uh, that people couldn't just, it made, it made no sense. But nowadays, I've noticed people are like, oh yeah, 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 of course. Of course God loves us. Why shouldn't he? We tend to think rather highly of ourselves and rather poorly of God. We take every opportunity we can to further our own interests. Talk about selfish ambition. Our whole society is consumed by greed. And and why has this happened? We seek for happiness and blessing from any number of sources. We set our hope and desire on people, our work, ideas. We do not set our hearts upon the Lord our God. Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And yet, we give our hearts and minds to all sorts of other things. Why? Why should God love us? He doesn't need us. We have rebelled against his commandments. We've ignored his grace time and again. We've preferred our own interests to those of him or others. What should stop him from sending us straight to hell? Fortunately, God is not a man. He is not a creature that he should think like we do. And in a passage that's all about how we think, we're being told, don't think the way you've always thought. Learn to think the way our Lord Jesus Christ thinks. He does not reward us as we deserve, 
but he shows mercy and displays before us the very humility which we have failed to exhibit. He placed your interests, your salvation, above his own interests. Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God, did not regard being equal with God a thing to be grasped, something to hold on to. But he willingly emptied himself of this glory. And when I say emptied himself of this glory, that baby that was, that was born in Bethlehem, that was placed in a manger, did not look any more glorious than any other baby that's ever been born. He emptied himself of his glory. What happens every time God shows up in the Old Testament? The glory of the Lord appears. What happened when Jesus showed up on earth? Hey, there's a kid. Emptied himself of his glory. And became a man so that you and I could be saved. It is this humility which Paul calls us to. I'd just like to point out something about about the way the, the apostles talk, which might seem a little bit odd. How can you imitate the incarnation? You're being called to imitate the incarnation. For that matter, uh, suffered to, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Have this same mind in you. You're called to imitate the atonement. I mean, how can we imitate the incarnation? These, these, these are the two things that only Jesus could do, and yet we're called to imitate these things. How can this be? It's because ha- have this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus, but whatever way you translate it, it winds up meaning the same thing. Because it's now that Christ has joined you to himself, his life has become yours. And so therefore, imitating the incarnation and the atonement is what happens when you participate in him. When you are joined to his life, then you begin to live and to think and to walk the same way that Jesus did. Because you're in him. It is this humility which Paul calls us to. And yet, as I've often said, the Christian ethic is not a cruciform ethic. The, the Christian life is a, is a cruciform life. We are conformed to the, to the likeness of the cross. But our ethic is not focused on the cross. Our ethic is focused on the resurrection. Because notice, why does Paul say this? If, if, if the point was just suffer with Jesus, suffer like Jesus, be like Jesus in his suffering, humiliation, then the end of the story would be, and that way you can die too. That's not Paul's point. I mean, he's going to go on in chapter 3, that if any way possible, I might be made like him in his resurrection. Because God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If all we had was the humiliation of Christ, it would be a poignant, tragic illustration of humility, but also a rather hollow one. 
because Christ's death only has meaning in the context of the resurrection. And in the exaltation of Christ, his victory gains meaning for us because it is the resurrected and ascended Christ who sat down at the right hand of the Father on the throne of David, inaugurating the kingdom of God. He was given the name that is above all names. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ has been made Lord of the universe. He might say, well, but he was Lord of the universe before. Oh, he was Lord of the universe as the eternal Son of God, yes. But he had never before been Lord of the universe as the incarnate Son of God. And what's the difference? Now there is a man, there is one who bears our nature, who sits at the right hand of the Father. Now the second Adam, the son of David, sits at the right hand of God. It means that now, as it is that the very human name of Jesus, Joshua, that all creatures will bow, every tongue will confess that Messiah, Jesus, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This means that humanity has been restored to favor with God. And all who bow the knee to Jesus Christ and humble themselves before him will also be exalted with him. The eternal Son of God has returned to the right hand of God. And because of that, something new has happened. There is now a man sitting at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ, the one who is true God and true man, is now the sovereign Lord of the universe. And everyone who belongs to him will share in his glory. And so Paul says, if this is the sort of God and Savior that you have, Keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling because God will accomplish his good purpose and he is the one who is at work in you. Verses 12 and 13 return us to the original thought of verses 1 to 4. You are to have the attitude, the mindset, the perspective of Christ Jesus and that attitude is chiefly characterized by humility and humility is defined by the person and work of Jesus and because you are in Jesus, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The, the fear and trembling here is a fear and trembling that should come when you realize how awesome and amazing God is and what God has done in Jesus. Paul's saying something like this. If one day all creation is going to fall on their faces at the name of Jesus... Uh, shouldn't we experience a, just a little bit of that fear and trembling now? And now, this fear and trembling is not to be confused with terror. I mean, only five verses later, Paul will call the Philippians to rejoice in the middle of their trials. So this is, the fear and trembling is not being terrified. But rather, let us think about why Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is because God is at work in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And Paul says this is a reason for fear and trembling. Again, maybe we've gotten so used to how God is at work in us that we forget how amazing and incredible this really is. Before the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, it was a rare thing for the Spirit of God to come upon a person. It happened to the, to the judges and the prophets and the priests and it sort of happened, uh, here and there occasionally. But 
in the resurrection of Jesus, God pours out his Holy Spirit upon all his people. Now the Holy, the Holy Spirit is at work to make us new because Jesus Christ has taken away our sin and given us his righteousness. And just a small point of grammar that matters here. The you in verses 12 and 13, yeah, it's plural. Paul's not just telling us individually, oh, yeah, yeah, everybody go off on your own and work out your own salvation independently. No, he's saying, all y'all, work out your salvation with fear and trembling together. For it is God who works in y'all. It is God who works among you to will and to do for his good pleasure. It goes back to what Paul had said in chapter 1, verse 19, when he had asked them and, and told them that their prayers would, would work out for his salvation. Because Paul understood their prayers would result in his salvation. He's not a Lone Ranger Christian. He needed the Philippians so much that he says that their prayers will result in his salvation. This is how much we need one another. Salvation includes not merely our justification, but also our sanctification and our glorification. And God uses others. He uses one another for his purposes in working out our salvation. Your prayers for one another have a strong effect. When the church is strong, it's because Christians are praying for one another. When the church is weak, it is often because we are cold in our prayers. And so all of us, as Michiana Covenant Church are to work out your salvation together because it is God who is at work in you. And he will bring to completion, as Paul said in the previous chapter, the good work that he has begun in you. And if God is at work in you, then our lives ought to show it. Yeah, it'll take time. Because each of us, like each of us, are stubborn, selfish, greedy, unkind. And it takes time. We must begin to put into practice the attitude of Christ, the, the mindset of humility. Don't let our selfish and greedy culture lure you away, but put the interests of others ahead of your own. One commentator has said that the, the only obstacle to unity in the church is selfishness. We would do well to think about that. Because if we honestly put the interests of others ahead of our own, if we resist the temptation to insist on having my own way, but with humility and gentleness, you seek to be united in spirit and purpose, what could possibly hinder our love for one another? Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, have mercy on us. For we are weak and frail and we, we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your love which you have shown in the humility of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was one with you from all eternity, did not count equality with you a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And so you have highly exalted him. And we thank you that you have bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. We thank you, Father. And we ask that you would have mercy on us, that you would help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that that you might work in us because you are the one who has promised and you are faithful. So help us by your spirit, we pray, that we might grow more and more in the grace, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, that we might have this same mind, this same way of thinking in ourselves, that we might not seek our own interests, but rather that we might seek the interest of Christ, that we might seek the interests of others. Lord, have, have mercy upon us and and, and help us in our weaknesses and our frailty. Help those who are sick and afflicted. Help those who are, who are suffering, who are grieving. Help those who are alone. And be, be near to, the, to the, the widow and the fatherless. Lord, strengthen us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, that we might walk before you all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.